I was in, and by the way, it's very, very hot there, like much more heat than here. Um, to give you an idea, we can get 55, close to 60 at times in the Sahara Desert, and uh, the ground heat is more than that, so it's radiating off. I mean, we're talking extreme. And when I moved into my village, it would be like 42, 43 at night in my house, and no power. So no, I mean, I'm not saying the power was off. I didn't have power, okay? So, um, you know, you're laying there on a tile. I would sleep on the tile floor because it's the coolest place to sleep. You don't want a bed because beds are too warm with the sheets. So I'd sleep on the tile floor. And if I had water, I would just douse myself in water and lay on the tile floor to stay cool. And during the night, maybe take two or three baths, just cup baths, you know, and, um, and get back on the floor. Well, eventually, a year into it, I got power to my house. It got hooked up with the city, and my village got it, and I had electricity. Now, I had a lot of power cuts, which is expected. That's fine. But I also had a power problem. You see, in my house, it was wired very poorly. And what I mean by that is there were a lot of shorts in the wall, so I'd have like little sparks, and it would blow the breaker. So basically, my power was off, but the electricity wasn't off, right? And so I'd have to go reset the breaker. Well, this happened very frequently, but I didn't always remember that this would happen. So I would get home after a day in Yame, the capital, and I'd come back to my house and it's 45, 47 outside and I'm in my house and I'm like, oh, power's off. Well, I go through my afternoon and my computer would go dead because I couldn't charge it. My phone would be dead. So studying, there was obstructions to studying. I'm sweating like crazy. The, the, the food in my refrigerator is, is starting to get warm and some stuff could go bad. I'm like, God, bring the electricity back on. God, bring the electricity back on. Electricity was on the whole time. My breaker had popped and I needed to step outside and flip a button and everything would come right back on. And sheepishly, I'd be like, oh, hang on. It's nighttime, and I see lights on outside. And I'd walk outside, and I'd flip a little button, and my refrigerator would come on, my fans would start whirling, my computer would start charging. And I thought, wow, I lived my whole day with no power. But it was right there. I look out at you all, and that's what I see. We all have the same power source, the Holy Spirit. We have full access to the power of the resurrection that we're going to see in Romans 6. Everything. Everything in Christ is yours. But so many of us are sweating it out, living in sin, choosing to let the world have us. Not because Goliath wasn't killed, but because I'm trying to be David. Instead of realizing that my David already killed Goliath. Keep these thoughts in your mind. It's going to be the way we see everything. The question is, will we live in the victory of Calvary? Romans chapter 6. And we're going to focus on the first 14 verses and What I would love is if uh, you brothers can read this for us. And so um, let's just uh, let's just start right here in the in the front row. Um, We'll start with you. okay? and we'll we'll move this way and kind of just curl around, snake it. okay? Um, and reading from chapter six, Romans, chapter six, verse one. And why don't we just read one verse at a time? So one verse until the first 14 verses have been read. So go ahead and let's read nice, loud and clear.
Amen. Wow, that is a powerful portion of Scripture. And here's what I want you to do. I want you all just to, maybe the best way to do it is just to close your eyes in a, in a second. Um, and what I'm going to do is I want to read the same portion, not all of it. I'm going to read um, verse 1, 6 through 11, and 12 to 14. But I'm going to read it in the Message Bible. Now, I, I say the Message is a commentary. It's basically not a commentary. It's a paraphrase, I should say, a paraphrase of Scripture and the reason uh, I want to read it from this is one thing that Eugene Peterson tried to do was, uh, especially in Hebrew, so when you're reading the Old Testament, but Hebrew is a beautiful language. This is obviously Greek. Uh, Hebrew is a beautiful language of a lot of word pictures. But Paul is painting a word picture in this passage. So sometimes word pictures are described when, when uh, being translated, we take it so literally, but sometimes in, our, um, in the day in which we live, it, the word of God hasn't changed. But sometimes the word pictures can be expressed in a way that, that bring it to life. So again, this is a paraphrase, but I just want you to absorb what we read now in this. So maybe just close your eyes just so you can think about the beauty of it. I'm not going to give you the verse numbers. It's just 1, 6 through 11 and 12 to 14. Here we go. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign... How can we still live in our old house there? Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin, miserable life. No longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this, if we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means you must not give sin a vote in any way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourself wholeheartedly and full-time. Remember, you've been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. Amen. Wow. Is this not exciting that where we start out with all this is recognizing who we are in Christ? And so we can see very clearly in this portion of 14 verses, the past and the present. Now, the past is articulated in in verses 1 to 11. And what is this past? Well, let's all take a look at it. Because we need to know, and I love the way that this version read or the, the message read, sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to me. I like that. In other words, sin's not allowed to have this power. Christ conquered it. He conquered the power of sin. And so what a disgrace. What a what an offensive thing, going back to the rubbish we talked about this morning, what an offensive thing when we choose to give power in our life to something Christ died for. Do we think of our sin as something which nailed the Lord to the tree? Do we think of our sin as something which dishonors him? See, I I think a lot of times we use the terms bad and good, and it's, it's it's a disgrace. God doesn't call you to be good, and he doesn't call you not to be bad. It's all about something new. In fact, when I came to know the Lord Jesus, I was very young. And when I say very young, nothing nothing to to boast of. It's by grace we're saved, whether it's young or old, right? At four years old, I knew I was a sinner. And people sometimes say, you can't know that that or i remember i remember realizing i've got sin in my life and i can't save myself and jesus died to save my sin i trust in him and i called my mom at four and i said mom i want to be saved and she told me 
confess your sin to the Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, trust in him, you'll be saved. I, I, I asked the Lord to save me. And here's what's beautiful. My mom and my dad changed the way they disciplined me. You know, I, I, I'm the kind of kid that likes to try a lot of things. And I definitely tested my parents' parenting ability many times. But my mother, before I was four, she would oftentimes tell me something was wrong. But after that, she said, Nathan, I changed the way I disciplined you. When you would do something that was wrong, I didn't say stop doing it because it's bad. I started asking you something different. I said, Nathan, does that please the Lord? See, the entire focus shifted. It wasn't about don't be bad. It was about, are you honoring Jesus? It was no longer about my mom and dad and Nathan, honor your parents. It was honor your parents in the Lord. It was a totally shifted perspective. But it was something that powerfully changed the way I viewed things. Because now I realize that my calling in life is not to avoid evil. My calling is to please the Lord. And I think so many of us are trying to escape a bondage that's already been defeated, and then we forsake the calling to which we've been called. And so the past here is Paul saying, guys, know who you are. The first phrase, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No, it has nothing to do with sin continuing in it. Like, that's the the gospel that saved us, but now what's the gospel that keeps us? You've been saved, you're being saved, you will be saved. Now, that can confuse people, but I'm saved from the penalty of my sin, but I still have the presence of it. But I'm being saved even from that presence of it. And one day, I'll be eternally, eternally, when I say saved, I'm already eternally saved, but I'll be eternally saved from even the fact that it exists while being God's perfect kingdom, eternally at home with him. I want to encourage you. That when Paul says, are we to continue in sin, he's saying, you're missing the point. Yes, you've been forgiven of your sins. Yes, God gives you eternal life. Yes, your salvation is secure in him. And because of that, sin's not the point anymore. Don't give it more credit than it deserves. It died with me. And so now live in the life that you've been called to live. And so we see Paul's past being discussed here. But... Let's break this down a little bit more. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. If we have been united. That word united is fun, okay? Um, it, it's, it's a word that, that, that means planted together. Planted together. It's uh, the same wording of John chapter 12, verses 24 to 26. Remember when Jesus Christ is speaking and he, uh, and he speaks with, uh, talking about... Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it'll bear much fruit. And same uh, terminology being used there, that we've been planted with Christ in his death. And likewise, picture baptism, right? And we're also planted with him in his resurrection. I wonder if some of us are believing a false identity about who we are, and that is why we keep choosing sin, and the world. Do you see yourself in the light of Christ's righteousness or do you see yourself in the light of your performance? See, the gospel frees me from performance because here's the thing. Maybe I've done really well. Maybe I've done really poorly. But who I am, I am in Christ. Something you're going to hear me without a doubt say later on just because... I have nothing to preach but Christ. I have made it extremely clear to Priyanka, my wife, my parents, to others around me, that when I die, I'm very specific about what I want on my tombstone. Please do not put anything I've ever done. Please don't give me any title. Please don't make it about me. I don't even want preacher of the gospel. Nothing wrong with that. I don't want that. I want one thing. Four words. I want the words, in Christ, alive forever. Why? 
everything about my life comes down to one thing. I'm in Christ. I was planted with him in his death. I was planted in his resurrection. My entire identity is him. And when I start to realize that, it changes many other things. I'll tell you another thing I struggled with when I was uh, 18 years old. I struggled extensively with depression. And not just with depression, but suicidal thoughts specifically. And I'm telling you, it was very, very heavy. And that's a whole journey. And feel free to ask any questions on that tonight if you want during the Unplugged. Again, my life's an open book. And don't feel awkward asking those questions. I want to be honest with you. It's all a journey of knowing Christ. But you know what brought me through that? Was Colossians 3, verse 3 and 4. Where Jesus Christ, through Paul, but Jesus Christ reminds us that we died. And our life is hidden in him. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. It challenged me to say, hey, I don't live anymore. How can a dead man be depressed? How can a dead man be suicidal? Uh, uh, that, that, that's, that sounds dumb. A dead man suicidal? Uh, it's because it doesn't make any sense. How can a dead man live in sin? See, we died. But we forget who we are because you wake up in the morning and think you have rights. You think you're entitled to something. You think that when people mistreat you, that that's not what I deserve. I'll tell you what we deserve. We deserve hell, okay? Just be thankful you don't get what you deserve. We're not entitled to anything. We've been given grace. And in grace, in Christ, we now have a new life. And that life is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So our past tells us, reminds us, Who we are now and who we are now is in Christ. We've been planted together. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. I love that. Brought to nothing. This is another powerful word. And the word brought to nothing. Okay, I'll give you a few few, uh, synonyms here. It means to render idle. This is great. Unemployed. Now, let me read it with that word in there. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be unemployed. Isn't that great? There's no job anymore for sin. It lost its job in our life because Christ defeated it. See, if we start seeing that sin was brought to nothing, that changes things. Not just that, uh, inactive, inoperative, Severed from, separated from, discharged, loosed. This is what sin is. And, and look, look, this, this brings us back to the message this morning. It says uh, at the end of verse 6, So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. And uh, let's go down to verse 11. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That, that consider yourself it's the same idea as counting, like we talked about this morning. Paul counted those things as lost. So to count, to assess, and he says, count yourself. Now, let's talk about an accountant some more, like this morning. An accountant does not have a subjective job. In other words, if I'm doing math, and my wife is a math teacher, and, and when she teaches math, she doesn't teach that 2 plus 1 can equal three, but you can put five. You want to put seven, it's all cool. Like, whatever. That's not okay. You see, when you count, there's a right way to count and there's a wrong way to count. When you count, you're taking the facts as the facts. And that's what Paul says here. Consider, count yourself to be dead to sin. Like, I think it'd be wise for us just to take a moment right now And ask, do you actually believe that? You say, but I see sin in my life. Yeah, but you're dead to it. Do you actually believe sin has power in your life, in Christ? You say, well, it obviously does because I keep falling into it. what, what, What power does it have? It's distracting you. It's causing you to waste your life. But it's not that it actually has power. You're just letting it have that. You're giving it that access. What does it say in Ephesians 4.26? 
that we're not to let the sun go down on our wrath, right? Not give a place to anger. But it talks specifically about do not give any place to the devil. You know what that tells me? It tells me that a Christian can give a place to the devil in his life. That's powerful. But it says give. Like the idea is I'm actually inviting the enemy saying, yeah, Jesus died for what you did to me or the, the temptation you presented before Eve at the beginning. But you know what? I want to invite you back in. I want to invite the very thing that crucified my Savior. Come hang out with me. That's what we do. It doesn't have power. It's been defeated. But we give a place. And, and remember, Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus. He's not talking to the unregenerate world here. Because later on, he says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. What does he say in verse 32 of that same passage? Forgive others as Christ has forgiven you. He's talking to the forgiven people of God, and they're giving the devil a place in their life. Just make sure we understand the context is clear. This is not being ripped out of that context. And so we've got the past. All right. And I remember, I want to just make sure that if there's a question or, or comment here, please throw it in there. But just understand, this is the counting going on. Okay, now let's get, to, let's get to this really practical aspect that I want us to kind of work out in this workshop session, and that's going to be the present. Look at verse 12. Let, us, let not sin, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. All right, so four things here. There's a throne... There's a threat, there are tools, and finally there is this treaty. All right, so there's a throne. What does verse 12 say? Let not sin, therefore reign. Reign is a kingly term, right? This idea of there's a throne. There's a throne in each one of our lives. And the thing about this throne is, even if Jesus Christ is your Savior. Again, Paul speaking to the church at Rome. Your throne can still be up for grabs. The question is, what calls your shots in your life? In other words, who, who controls or who commands your actions? And when it says, let not sin reign, I, I have to ask the question like, what do we refer to as sin? Because in all reality, sin can be a lot of good things in the wrong place. I'll give illustrations. Money. Money is not bad. The love of money is the root of all evil. All right. How about relationships? Relationships are not bad. God created them. He gave them to us. A relationship misplaced is sin. Words are not bad. In fact, I'm to bless you with my words. I'm to encourage you with my words. Words misused are sin. And this is what we're going to see in just a minute because there's this throne that's constantly up for grabs. And if Christ is the one reigning in our life. He controls all of these tools that we're going to see, including these tools that so often bring us into lustful situations. And again, it's going to be because we're straddling a line of sin and not pursuing our Savior. If you are right now, no condemnation in Jesus Christ, Romans 8.1, but if you are living in sin or if you are living in a place, I, I, the confession doesn't start with coming to me or coming to one of your elders. The confession starts by confessing to the Lord and just clearly acknowledging I've been letting other things reign. Probably one of the first things reigning in your life is your flesh, your feelings. Let me say it like this. Feelings are fact, but feelings are not always based on fact. In other words, you feel, you want a certain something in your life, and that's lust. When I say lust, do we know the biblical definition of lust? 
Because actually, do you know there's actually one passage where Jesus lusted? Does anybody know where that one passage is that Jesus lusted? It's the word used. What's that? Okay, that, that's a, he was hungry. But the actual word lust that's used in Scripture is in Luke 22. Christ at the Last Supper. He says, I have eagerly waited this moment. It's the word lust. It's the same word. The word lust, though, in Scripture means an over-desire. But an over-desire is only right when the desire is exactly properly placed. So Christ obviously placed it properly. But for us, lust are things that we desire out of place. Okay, sex. Sex is not a bad thing. In fact, who made it? God, absolutely. But sex out of place in both the life of a married person and an unmarried person is sin. You see, God's got parameters for what he gives us. How about food? Food properly placed is a good thing. Food improperly placed, out of, again, sin. But in fact, here's what's interesting. Let, let, me, uh, let, let me pull you, you all, and I just want to see if, if any of us give the right answer based on Scripture. If I said, what are the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah according to God? What would we say? I know according to the church what we would say. Exactly, that's what we would say. You know what God says? It's interesting. In Ezekiel chapter 16, he says the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are four things. One of them was pride. Second one, excess of food. Yeah, basically gluttony. Now that's crazy. We're like, what, excess food? Yeah, excess food. More than you need. That, that led them to saying, okay, I got excess food, so now what's the next thing I can have? Oh, how about let's change up sexual relations? And Romans 1 tells us it's because they weren't thankful with what God had given them in the first place. Thankfulness was the issue. The other one, prosperous ease. They had easy lives. They had luxury. They were in a comfort zone. That sounds like us too. And the fourth thing, they didn't help the poor and needy. Those are the sins of Sodom. Yeah, it led to homosexuality. It's not where it started. See, lust is a very interesting thing. It doesn't start with what's bad. What does the enemy want to do? He wants to take something good and say, let's just shift this around a little bit. Let's put it in the wrong place. Even ministry can do that. God can give you a great ministry, but it can become the first thing in your life. You can serve your ministry instead of serving the Lord. So lust. Lust is an over-desire. So let's just pause for a second. And I want to give just maybe, uh, maybe one minute of silence. And I want us to take with our pens or our phones, however we're doing our notes. And I want us just to ask the Holy Spirit to convict us. Maybe just reveal. And it's probably not like pornography is the first thing, even though like that's where I started the illustrations. What are things that are out of place? In our life, it says, let not sin reign. But what's calling the shots in your life? And I'll think about my life. As we keep those thoughts in our mind, we see that this is the threat that's being laid out right here. 
says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Sin is the threat that was mentioned. But I want you to see the tool. The tool is the word passions in this verse. Did you see that? Verse 12, to make you obey its passions. Sin is the threat. Passions are the tool. You know why I use the word tool? That word passions is completely a neutral word in this passage. It's not a positive word. It's not a negative word. It's just neutral. The sin's the threat, that which doesn't please God, but passions are the tool. So now I want you to think back to those things you just listed or thought of or named as what could be reigning in your life. Now, chances are there were some that are sin. Chances are some were not sin. It was a passion that got out of place. I'm not saying there is not sin that the Lord convicts me of frequently. Absolutely there is. I would be a hypocrite if I said there wasn't. It's usually misplaced passions. And notice, this being a neutral word, you know what that tells me? It tells me now that same list that was negative could be positive. The very things that I'm like, Lord, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit, by the way, I'm choosing to misplace my passions. Those passions were given to me by God to glorify him. I want you to get excited. This topic we're looking at right here, normally we leave like, ah, I got to go try harder. No, we're going to leave excited that God's given us every opportunity to glorify him. And I'm going to tell you something I'm going to repeat tonight because the women need to hear this too, okay? But I want to share something with you that has changed. I mean, uh, this like pumps me up. Like, I'm like, wow, this is beautiful. Okay, I think you're going to get excited too. I want you all to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter 4. And, and this is like, because what's my goal? My goal is to please the Lord, right? I want to please him. Now, this is beautiful. We're going to talk tonight about the fellowship of his suffering, right? Now, chances are there's a difference between persecution and suffering, all right? Persecution, direct result of the gospel. Suffering happens to the world all the time, um, but the question is, are we using our suffering to glorify him? So I just want you to understand the difference here. The world lusts. Christians also have that temptation to lust. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 4, there's an interesting uh, phrase which can seem confusing at first glance. Verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves, and again, we're still talking like military terms here, just like there's a a kingdom being attacked in Romans 6. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Okay, pause. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? That doesn't make much sense. If I suffer, I don't sin? What? Flip it around for a second. If you're going to cease from sin, you're going to suffer in the flesh. Now, let's keep going with this. What What is said to the church about a godly life? Whoever desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, okay, so you will suffer persecution, guaranteed. So sometimes I, I, like, I, I, I say that verse, like, if you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, you'll suffer persecution. I'm like, so are you being persecuted? And uh, I don't know. Then we're not living godly. Okay, pause. You want to know one persecution of the flesh that's going to come? You will be barraged. You'll be attacked incessantly by a perverse sexually charged world from the ads you see on television to billboards to conversations in the office constantly pushing on you the lust of the flesh now get excited god has just set the stage for you not only to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings he's giving you the chance to suffer for his name because your flesh and your feelings say do it give in think about it indulge And get this, when you say, no, I'm pursuing Christ, you suffer. And we know we suffer. It hurts like crazy to say no to the flesh. Oh, wow. Literally, our bodies literally suffer as men. 
There's literally a burning suffering that we have as men. We say, you don't understand me. I'm just a really, like, charged guy. I say, great. Greater blessing to you for suffering for Christ. Get excited because every time a sexual temptation comes your way, the stage has just been set to share in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. Have you ever thought about those things in that light? Every day as men, we are invited to cease from sin in sharing in his suffering. I don't know about you, but wow, what a privilege. What a privilege to tell the Lord and you know what? Most people will never know it. You don't you have to say it to anybody. What a privilege just to, as you have those desires, to say, Lord, I love you. You're literally writing the Lord a love letter as you say, I'm pursuing you. The line of sin is there. I'm pursuing you. You're worth it. Thank you for letting me share in what it means to know you more. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies to obey its its passions. Instead, take that and offer it as a sacrifice to God. Yeah, your feelings are fact. You really feel that way. I get it. Your feelings aren't based on fact. The enemy says, so eat the fruit. Eve could have said, no, I love the Lord. And that's what we're presented with on a daily basis. You know, not just that, but where does this battle really wage its war? Well, we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that a lot of this war happens in the mind, does it not? That is the, the place of this battlefield. When Paul is saying here that uh, we are not to let sin therefore reign in our mortal body to make, it, uh, make us obey its passions, in 1 Corinthians, I said 1 Corinthians, I apologize, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought into captivity to obey Christ. That means that every thought has the potential to let sin reign and every thought has the potential to let Christ reign. And so when I'm taking thoughts into captivity, I want to give you a little simple way to remember this. There's a difference in English between the word muse and amuse. If you're spelling these words, one is spelled M-U-S-E, and the second one has the letter A before it. If you know grammatically in English, if I add a letter A to something, atypical instead of typical, it negates it. It makes it the contrary. So therefore, let's think about the word muse. If I muse about something, it means I'm thinking about something, contemplating it, looking at what are the implications of it. So to muse is to think. So what is to be amused? The lack of thinking, the absence of thinking. The world you live in, men, the world I live in, is a world that wants us not to think. Not to think about eternity, mostly. Not to think about what really matters in the light of God's glory. And that's what we have to do when we're facing these bo- the bombardment of the flesh. We've got to think. We've got to come back to the Word of God. We've got to come back to taking every thought into captivity to obey Christ. So be excited because here's the thing. When the Holy Spirit says, hey, that's not in the right place in your life. Like that, that, that's a passion off. It's a lust. It's misplaced. Sometimes we get discouraged. Don't get discouraged. Get excited. Well, what did the Holy Spirit just do? He just convicted you. When God convicts you, he's not mad at you. When God convicts you, he's changing you. See, the enemy is going to condemn you. God's going to convict you. The enemy condemns you so you quit. God convicts you so you change. So when you're convicted, if you're convicted right now, say, man, I've been, I've been letting the enemy have the throne in my life. I've been letting the enemy reign in this area. I've been letting him use the tool of me, self. Please don't be discouraged. Please don't leave this session thinking, I've got to go try harder. 
don't try harder. David already won. The battle's already been conquered. The decision's been declared. But what are we going to do when we collect all these thoughts? Are we going to enjoy what is ours? Are we going to go out and flip the breaker and let the power be in the house? Are we going to keep living in the dark and sleeping on the floor, dousing ourselves with water, wishing there was some cool air? When the Holy Spirit has been given to us, is the Holy Spirit insufficient in your life? No. We just choose not to let him reign. This really comes back to a foundational principle in letting the Holy Spirit reign in our life. When, when I think about the attacks of the enemy, I have to realize that he's not trying much that's new. In fact, if anything, he does the same thing over and over. There's an illustration I like to use, and I won't do it right now because of time, and I want us to finish with something else. I want us to finish with a practical thing. I, I know I still have 20 minutes. But I, I have this thing where I would call someone up, and as they walk up, and you can see, I can, if you want to see it later, the whole message, um, I can give you a link on my Facebook, but I'd call them up, and as they walk up, I would just shove them. They would fall. And they'd be shocked that they got called up by a speaker, and they just got shoved into the ground. And I said, get back up. Come back to me. I'm going to shove you again. And they're like, what? I said, come back. I'm going to shove you again. Well, this time when I shove them, they don't fall. You know why they don't fall? They're expecting to be shoved. So already, there's a bit of an advantage having. I said, I'm going to, but then I don't tell them. I just keep shoving them. And you know what? They keep not falling. They keep not falling. They keep not falling. And like randomly throughout the whole message, I'll just like try to shove them. And they're still ready. And it's been like five, ten minutes. And that's good, but that's not all. Then I start to help them out a little bit. I start to ask, where are we standing? When you start to look in Scripture, you ask, well, where does the Word of God have a stand? We start to see that 1 Corinthians 15.1 says, stand in the gospel. So I call somebody up and I say, you're the gospel. Now, hold on to this guy. And he holds on. I, I, I don't touch the gospel. The devil can't touch the gospel. I start shoving that guy, but, you know, he moves even less than before. First, he doesn't want to fall. Second, he's got the gospel holding on to him. And then I start going to other scriptures. We stand in grace, and I bring another guy up, and he's got two guys holding him. And now we got grace and the gospel holding him. And I say, but we stand in faith. And so we call it faith, and faith holds him. we got three guys. He's standing in grace. He's standing in faith. He's standing in the gospel. We keep seeing more and more. Finally, we get to Philippians 4.1, stand in the Lord. By the end, I've got about six, there's more passages in this, but I've used about six different things we stand in. I've got these six massive guys holding on to one smaller guy. I can't even see the guy around all these bodies of big men. And all I'm left with is a little hand just like trying to shove this guy over as he holds his ground with the gospel and grace and faith and the Lord just surrounding him. I said, that's the picture God gives us of the devil's power. Same techniques over and over and over. You know it. You're not falling to anything new like, oh, wow, that was kind of smart. He came in the back door. No. He doesn't need a new technique. It keeps working. Because we invite him to have a place in our life. My brothers, victory is won. We've been told where to stand. We've been told for whom to live. We've been told the perspective to enjoy. Let's change our focus. Let's get excited about the fact that when we leave this place, probably while you're still here actually, You'll have those attacks attack. You'll have those thoughts attack you, and think, "Oh wow, I get to suffer for Christ. Oh wow, I get to please the Lord. I get to literally say, I love you, Lord.' Get excited. You have the most amazing life before you. 
where one day when you stand before the Lord, he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he probably won't be referring to how many times you preach from a pulpit. He probably won't be referring to how much you gave to the poor. Yeah, those things will happen as a side thing. He'll be referring to how many times you said, I love him when no one was watching. Survived? No, you thrived. You gave your life to the Lord. And you let him be pleased in your mortal flesh, your tent. The Lord will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Probably the things that bring the Lord the most glory are the things that nobody else sees because you're not getting it from man. The very thing we walked in here saying, oh man, this is a discouraging topic. I hope you realize it may be the most exciting topic in your entire life. It may be the greatest vehicle through which to give God glory. It'll be your flesh that you hate so much as a flesh you can offer to the Lord who already gave you his righteousness. You don't have to perform to be saved. You're saved through his grace. But now we get to give him our works. And why do I say that? Revelation 19, verse 8. That when we stand before him, the robes of white, the righteous works of the saints. This is our privilege. It's our opportunity. And let's take advantage of what God's given us to glorify him. More could be said. I'm going to stop there. I'll tell you why. I want to give you a chance for some questions or comments. Either one, fine. And then we're going to break off into groups of two. And what I want us to do is I want us, or three, two or three is fine. I want us to pray over the other person. And not just praying for victory and pornography. I want us to pray about the pursuit. I want us to actually pour out before the Lord our heart for our brothers. Encourage each other because the day is drawing near. So that's how we're going to end this time. Um, and we'll be done in 15 minutes. But first, are there any thoughts or questions? Maybe something wasn't clear or you want to go a little further into it. That's totally fine. I understand. We flew through what we flew through. Or comments. Maybe the Lord just put something in your heart and you just want to share that one thing. Please, uh, I would love to hear, and I'm sure others would glean from it as well. Brother. Sorry, throughout the week you said, how do we keep it? Oh. Yes, absolutely. All right, so remember what it said um, back in 2 Corinthians 10, 5 about taking every thought into captivity. One thing incredibly important in the Christian life is, and there was a, uh, there's a, there's a little book that I would encourage you reading sometime called Practicing the Presence of God. It impacted my life greatly. is by a um, brother named Bro- Brother Lawrence, is what he was called. Um, and he thought, what would it look like to live every moment in the presence of God? Just recognizing God is with us. His presence is there. But what would be the difference when I realize I'm living before the face of the Lord? And so uh, I'm not using myself as an example. I'm just telling, taking an example that's impacted my life, okay? And, and what that has been, talking uh, what you said, is seeing everything in the light of eternity. So practicing God's presence of realizing that every conversation has eternal value. Every thought I have by myself has eternal value, even when no one's around. It does. Am I filtering it through the lens of forever? It's fine to think about sports. That's great. But I'm still thinking about it in the light of forever and saying, all right, first of all, so my team lost. Big deal. doesn't really matter in the long run. But you know what? Um, Maybe I have that conversation with someone and it's a bridge to something else. I don't know. But I start just to take thoughts captive. And then... When I realize I'm not taking thoughts captive, usually it's conviction of sin, and I see the way I responded to somebody, or I was frustrated with something, or I was wishing for something I didn't have, or I complained, or I wor- all these things draw me back in. So how do I keep this perspective week in and week out as we go from here? Always taking my thoughts moment by moment. Don't focus like day by day or week by week, or don't make some kind of plan for the next year. Today, when you wake up in the morning... 
Come, yes, come back to the Word of God. Sure, be in the Word of God. That's all great stuff. We know that. That, that. that should be consistency in the Christian life. But I'm talking, how do I live in victory? I don't have my time with God in the morning. My life is lived with God. Like, in other words, when I read the Bible in the morning, I'm not done with my time with God. That's such a danger. Because we'll walk out of there thinking, I gave God my time, and somehow that's just going to carry me through the day. No, it doesn't. We've got to practice God's presence moment by moment, taking thoughts into captivity constantly, every interaction we have. When you leave here and you start talking with your sisters or your brothers or whatever, start practicing it right away. Don't think, okay, I just had a good session and we'll have more sessions later. No, no. Moment by moment by moment. Sin creeps, shoves, shoves, shoves. We've got to be men who live constantly in the light of eternity and constantly in the light of his glory. And as you do that, I guarantee, because the word of God is true, I guarantee you will start to see the power of God demonstrated through your life. And you'll see your own heart being changed. We'll talk more about that tonight in knowing him. But that's a phenomenal question. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, wow. So, so that, that, that's, uh, that's a whole message on idolatry, really, is what it ends up being. And when Jesus Christ is on my throne, I'll tell you, sometimes it's not clearly evident to everyone else, but they will see the evidence of it. So, in other words, it might not come back to me. It might not come back to any glory going to the individual. But when Christ is on the throne of my life, you're going to get love like you've rarely tasted. You're going to get me serving you behind your back, and you won't even know I was the one doing it, but you will see God's true blessing in your life. You're going to get words of encouragement. You're going to forget they even came from me, but you're going to still have that. See, when Christ is on the throne of my life, this is the beautiful thing. Everyone around me is going to be impacted. And yet, everyone around me might not know that that was the vessel God used. Because what's going to happen? My life's going to bear fruit. But if I'm bearing fruit, it doesn't mean you're changed. If I'm bearing fruit, it means I've got love available to you. And you pluck off love and taste it. And it's, it tastes like Jesus. You're going to pluck patience off my life and taste it because I'm bearing fruit. And again, that fruit doesn't lead you back to the tree. It's the source. So when Christ is reigning in my life, this is what's going to be evidence is everything around me. Is, is affected. But at the same time, the throne of my life, I say it's up for grabs because the same thing is true if I'm not seeing Christ, if Christ is not like being given that throne. Again, Christ is Lord. There's no, don't make him Lord. He is Lord. There's no debating that, all right? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I can't make him Lord of my, like he's Lord. But I can surrender to him as the Lord or I can fight him the position, which is what happens oftentimes. Of course, I'm losing, but I'm still fighting, right? So with that being said, if the opposite is true, what are you guys going to get? If, if I'm reigning my own life, you're going to get selfishness. You're not going to get that service that hides behind your back. I'm going to want you to serve me. The opposite is going to be true. Instead of seeing my precious sisters as souls Christ died for eternally love, woven together perfectly by their Father, heaven, I'm going to see them as assets and tools and sources of lust. I'm not going to see them the way the Lord sees them. See, that's the difference between who reigns. And it's such a drastic effect. And so I would ask myself the question I challenge you to throughout the day. Did Christ reign in that conversation? Did Christ reign in my thought life? Did Christ reign over even... My, uh, the way I listened in the message, did Christ reign over what? You, you fill in the blanks. Okay, great. Yes. So I think it really comes back to when someone is saved to make sure that we point them to the mission they're part of, that they're pointed to what they've been called into. Because if you're just like, oh, good, you're saved, you're in. Now you sit there and you're like, now what? 
No, not now what? Now your entire trajectory in life has been changed. God is redeeming a people for himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue. From all these companies in Bangalore, from the men and women sitting at desks, to the ones in the market, to the ones running restaurants. Like God is doing this beautiful work of redeeming souls. And now you are part of it, where everything you do has significance to draw souls to know your Savior. And so we've got to make sure that, that, that what we're doing when souls come to know Christ, when people are in, brought into the church the blood of Jesus, that you are on mission and that mission ends seeing the face of Jesus Christ. And I believe one of the greatest disservices we do is when someone's saved being like, all right, good, they're saved, that's it. No, go and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Like we are on an absolute time-consuming, life-consuming mission, and that is to know him, to make him known. And so we've got to be equipping and preparing each other, and that's the thing, is when I'm focused on that mission, remember that line of sin. It's just in the background, because now all these assets are not being pointed to selfish consumption, but to a Christ who's worthy. So I believe that that is one of the biggest things, is we have to see our life plugged into his mission, not just see our life as something to survive. Oh, no, no, no. You're way too valuable for that. Yes, we'll come. Uh, yes. Yes, that's such a great point. I wish I had a board right here. Um, I like a chalkboard because I, I would I would draw you something that I think really clearly explains it. Um, but what I'll do is this. Okay, so uh, you're gonna have to really focus here just for a second because I think it's really helpful. Maybe if you have a notebook, draw it in your notebook. Okay, so I would draw a dot right here and a dot right here. Okay, and this is that this is the line. Okay, Christ here and where I'm starting. In theory, the best way to get to that dot is like this: perfect life. That is not realistic but draw a line that's ideal then i would take a different color and i would start drawing okay so i start out and then what happens i get detoured or sidetracked boom sin so now i'm here oftentimes what we think is i have to start over i have to get back to that line that's not true because here's the thing god doesn't just forgive your past he redeems it some of you have a lot of sin some of you being nate bramson some of you have a lot of sin in your life When I say in your life, I don't mean right now. I mean just sin in your life. And you think, man, God, like how can you use someone like me? How can you forgive someone like me? All those things are focused on you, not the gospel. So now you sidetracked. You're over here. The the path to a holy life is not here and there. It's from there up to here. It's now a diagonal, right, going up. But as it goes, you're going to keep having zigzags out, right, like a Christmas tree kind of thing, boom, right? All right. Now. Why do I draw that? I would take another color. I'd color in all that area that's off the line. God redeems it. But understand this. It's in our brokenness that his beauty is showing. His forgiveness is showing. So the very things that you would say have actually set you off path, when you're willing in humility to confess, when in humility you're willing to say, man, I'm a broken individual, but let me tell you about my Savior. The very things you wish that were not part of your story will actually become the part of your story that brings souls that are on the outside to see the beauty of Jesus Christ in you. That's what's great. He does not just forgive me. He redeems my story. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Why? Because I've been saved from so great a a condemnation and I've been saved to such a great relationship so be encouraged god doesn't keep saying start over start over start over start over no he picks you up where you're at and in humility and brokenness if you're willing to live a life of repentance not just confession repentance he takes that and he makes something beautiful out of it and that's what we see throughout all biblical characters that walk with god you don't see perfect examples you see very flawed individuals but flawed individuals who knew who their God was and they knew where salvation was found. I'm so thankful for that. Thanks for asking that question too.
Uh, we had one more over here, and then we'll just take um, like two minutes to pray for each other. We'll, we'll talk about this a bit more this evening, but really this all comes back to the preciousness of Jesus Christ. You're going to find that everything revolves around the person of Jesus Christ. And I believe that the reason we don't choose to live holy lives is because we don't love the Lord. And I didn't say you're not saved, so we don't love the Lord. And the reason we don't love the Lord is because we don't know him very well. Who, whom having not seen you, love. Rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Listen, he's altogether lovely. This is my beloved. I am his and he is mine. When you get to know Jesus Christ and his love, you will be enamored with the opportunity to want to please him. So when I see brothers that are just claim to be saved, I'm not saying they are or they're not, but I have to keep coming back to them and say, do you know the Lord? Like when I say, do you know the Lord? I'm not questioning your salvation. You can question that. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself. See if you are in the faith. See if Christ be in you. But if you're not, if you don't see his beauty, like do you know him? Can I, can I share the gospel with you again? Can we get back to who he is and what he's done? Can we get back to what he's given you in Christ Jesus? Can we get back to the identity that he tells you of who you are? And see, I really think it all comes back to seeing the beauty of Jesus. And in the light of that beauty, saying, I I don't have to live for the Lord. I get to live for the Lord. There's a difference. It's not an obligation. It's an invitation. I've been invited. Yes, in Christ, it ought to be something we also see as a necessity. But it's an invitation. So that... That's really, brother, where I come back to. Let's pray specifically this. We just have two minutes. Let's pray for a love for the Lord Jesus. Let's pray for each one of us that we would grow in our love for him, that we would grow in our desire to know him intimately. And remember this. When you choose to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, guess what? You're going to know him more. He's going to reveal himself to you as your sustainer. As the faithful one. So, step one is already right before you. Next time, we have these attacks of the flesh in even our mind. He's saying, you want to know me more? Trust my strength. Because in your weakness, it's made perfect. I am enough for you. So let's pray this for one another. So, uh, I'm going to pray. When I say amen, find one brother. You pray for them. Yes. Yeah, even better. Thank you. Not to be rushed? Yeah. Great. Then that's beautiful. So get, get groups of three or whatever and pray for each other. So let me pray for all of us, and I'm going to join a group myself, and let's um, yeah, pray for a love to thee, to the Lord. Father, I, just, I think of that song that says, More love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee. This is my prayer on bended knee. Lord, I believe that would really solve all of our issues. The, the problem, Lord, is not that you're not altogether lovely. The problem is I fail to see or I fail to look at your loveliness. I love my brothers here. I, I, I just, I'm so thankful to be part of the body of Christ. And it's incredibly encouraging to me to think you've given us victory. Like, it's done. The battle's been won. Calvary was enough. The grave's been defeated. And we don't have to go out and conquer. The gospel's sufficient. Jesus Christ reigns, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I'm not wondering about any of that. Like, I know it's true. But then I look at us, I look at me, and I think how often I choose to live in the spiritual slums when you've given me a mansion. God, I just ask in your mercy that these thoughts, these truths just come alive in our life and that we step back from trying to be David and we celebrate David. We celebrate the one who 
killed our Goliath. God, I pray that even the ladies are going to wonder what happened to the men when they just start to see a joy and freedom that we have in having the opportunity to please you. I make this prayer in the name of Jesus because he's the one that has given us the power through the Holy Spirit to even live this life victoriously. So in his name I pray, amen. Let's enjoy this time of prayer with each other. So don't rush it as, as uh, my brother just invited us not to. Um, and yeah, just let's just really pour out our hearts before the Lord.